Okay. So on this Sunday that, of course, Ryan is on sabbatical and Sims is traveling, uh, we have an assignment, church, and the assignment disappeared. There it is. Um, Pastor Ryan, not Pastor Ryan, but Pastor Sims, asked that we would come to a better understanding of this word chesed. You gotta, it's a Hebrew word, and you've got to kind of get a little cluck in your throat to say it right, chesed. And don't worry if you can't say it right. I used, I'm probably saying it wrong, too, actually. But, um, and it's an important word because it helps us understand the one another's that we've been talking about all summer. And it's the only word other than his own name that God uses to describe his glory. When God reveals his glory to Moses, he says, Yahweh, Yahweh, that's his name, right? Yahweh, Yahweh, gracious and compassionate, slow to anger and abounding in chesed and faithfulness. Maintaining chesed, there it is again, for a thousand generations. But here's the rub. There's no other language that has a word quite like it. And in his book on the topic, Christian writer Mark, Michael Card called it an untranslatable word defining the inexpressible. We have 45 minutes <laughs> to figure this out. So um, what I did is I asked um, Laura in the office if she would write down all the scriptures we're going to look at because we're going to go quick because we have to look at a lot of things to understand this untranslatable word that defines the inexpressible. Um, and I didn't want you to have to spend a lot of time. So as we mention these, some of these we're just going to mention. You can go ahead and circle them or, or whatnot. And, and if I go long, who am I kidding? When I go long, you'll be able to kind of check them off and, oh, we're almost done. He's only got three more to go. Um, so we're gonna, we've asked uh, Ryan Myers to come up and read that first one for us. Now, Ryan, if you could come up. Remember your journey from Shittim to Gilgal, that you may know the righteous acts of the Lord. With what shall I come before the Lord and bow down before the exalted God? Shall I come before him with burnt offerings, with calves a year old? Will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams, with 10,000 rivers of oil? Shall I offer my firstborn for my transgression, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? He has showed you, O man, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you? To act justly and to love mercy and to walk humbly with your God. Listen, the Lord is calling to the city, and to fear your name is wisdom. Heed the rod and the one who appointed it. Am I still to forget, O wicked house, your ill-gotten treasures, and the short ephah which is accursed? Shall I acquit a man with dishonest scales, with a bag of false weights? Her rich men are violent, her people are liars, and their tongues speak deceitfully. Therefore I have begun to destroy you, to ruin you because of your sins." You will eat, but not be satisfied. Your stomach will still be empty. You will store up, but save nothing, because what you save I will give to the sword. You will plant, but not harvest. You will press olives, but not use the oil on yourselves. You will crush grapes, but not drink the wine. You have observed the statutes of Omri and all the practices of Ahab's house, and you have followed their tra traditions. Therefore, I will give you over to ruin and your people to derision. You will bear the scorn of the nations. The word of the Lord. So I, I want to start this morning and tell you a little bit about a friend of mine that I knew when I lived in Florida. His name is Nick. And I did ask his permission to share his story 
And Nick was a good friend of mine. He was a little bit older than me, whereas I am about as old as you can be and still be considered a millennial. Look it up. Um, <laughs> he and Nick was about as old as you can be and still be considered Generation X. And even though he was always wrong about politics, he was usually right about a lot of everything else. And he was well respected in the church. He knew the word of God. And um, he always had good advice for me as somebody who was younger, um, especially in personal finances and that sort of thing. And like I said, he was well known in the church. His, his wife, Cindy, worked at the local Christian school. It wasn't quite as big, but reputation wise, it was very much the Black Hawk of the area. And when I, as I got to know him a little more and he invited me over, they were working on uh, expanding their house. They were doing something with the chimney. I didn't quite understand, but he did, uh, whatever. Um, but he had, uh, and he was well-respected at work. He was climbing a corporate ladder in a regional office for a very large telecommunication company. And so he very much was somebody to look up to, very much somebody that had it together. And one night, Nick's wife came home, Nick's wife Cindy came home in tears, and she told him, I've been having an affair with a student, and the police are coming to arrest me. And Nick had to decide what to do. And when we look at the scripture we read today, it's kind of hard to know what to do. What do we, and we have to decide what to do sometimes when somebody has really harmed us, when somebody has done something very wrong and maybe it was even an act of betrayal. What does it look like to do justice and love mercy? Aren't those opposites? Doing justice means somebody gets what they deserve. And if you're like me and you were raised in the church, mercy is usually described as a contrast to grace, meaning not getting what you deserve. And so this is kind of tricky to understand. And because of this, we need to know a little bit more about what these different words mean. What does it mean to do justice? What does justice mean to God? And what does mercy mean, or this word mercy? So the very first time we run into the word justice in the Bible is actually not until Genesis 18. Um, it's actually Genesis 18:18. And it says this, Abraham is to become a great and powerful nation. This is God speaking. And all the nations of the earth will be blessed through him. For I have chosen him that he will command his children and his house after him to keep the way of the Lord by doing what is right and just. Same word as justice in Micah's passage. This is how the Lord will fulfill to Abraham what he promised him. Then the Lord said, the outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah is immense, and their sin is extremely serious. I will go down and see if what they have done justifies the cry that has come up to me. If not, I will find out. Then the men turned from there and went toward Sodom, while Abraham remained standing before the Lord. Abraham stepped forward and said, will you really sweep away the righteous with the wicked? What if there are 50 righteous people in the city? Will you really sweep it away instead of sparing the place for the sake of 50 righteous people who are in it? You could not possibly do such a thing to kill the righteous with the wicked, treating the righteous and the wicked alike. You could not possibly do that. Won't the judge of the whole earth do what is just? Same word again. So what we see here, we could go into Sodom and Gomorrah and what exactly their sin was, but what we do know from this passage is that their sin was great. 
and there was something to be done about it. And that's the first thing we know about justice from this, is that the people of Sodom and Gomorrah had done something. Something was due to them. And to do justice, God was going to go do, D-O, what was due, D-U-E, based on what they have done. All right? And then, of course, God is calling us to do that. So when we do what is due based on what's been done, now we have done something, and something is due to us. So at its very core, at its basic structure, justice is this cycle of doing what is due. Yeah, maybe, maybe that's why people are in deep doo-doo. Sorry, I couldn't resist. Um, so, um, so doing justice is that. The second thing we see from this word justice is that it's the providence of the powerful. God is the judge of all the earth. He is powerful. He is able to do that justice. This is why calls of justice are always, they always address the powerful. Even the passages that talk about not treating the poor as not powerful or differently are still, those passages are addressing the powerful. This is a really important concept to God. This is why in the very next chapter, we see what happens when somebody tries to do justice without power. In the very next chapter, if you know the story, the angels go down to Sodom and Gomorrah, and Lot invites them in, and they tell him, you need to get out. And while they're there talking to Lot, the people of Sodom and Gomorrah come, and they say, hey, you've got these new people in your house. Bring them out so we can do violence to them. So literally, so we can have sex with them. We can rape them. And Lot tries to do justice from his position. And he offers something absolutely horrendous. He said, don't do this evil, my brothers. Look, I've got two daughters who haven't been intimate with a man. I'll bring them out to you and you can do whatever you want to them. However, don't do anything to these men because they have come under the protection of my roof. He's trying to do justice. And the response of the people of Sodom is get out of the way, they said, adding this one came here as an alien, but now he is acting like a judge. Now we will do more harm to you than to them. Then they put pressure on, the, on Lot and came up to break the door down. When we try to do justice without power, it doesn't work. This is why we don't expect justice from an infant, right? An infant has no power over anything, not even their own body, so we don't expect them to do justice. A small child does have some power over their body and their movements, and so we do expect them to do some level of justice. Timmy, don't hit your sister and use the potty, right? So where we have power is where God expects us to do justice. It is the providence of the powerful. The last thing that's important for us to understand about justice is actually in the Bible, there are many standards of justice. In 1 Kings, or sorry, not 1 Kings, in 1 Samuel 10, 25, we find out that there's the justice of the king. When Israel asks for a king, Samuel tells them this is the ways that the king will act. But the term there is actually the same term we're seeing in Micah. It's the justice of the king. The cycle of doing what is due based on the king. We also see it in the book of Judges when Samson becomes a Nazarite. His parents are told that after they ask, well, what's the justice of Samson's life to the angel that tells them about him? Same word, justice. And lastly, in Ezekiel 7.27, we see that there's a justice of blood. 
that the Israelites have done. They've acted like the Babylonians. And God says, by your own standard, then, you will be judged. Since you have chosen the standard of justice of the Babylonians, I'm going to give you the justice of the Babylonians. This is exactly what Jesus was talking about when he said, Judge not, lest ye be judged. For by the same standard, you will be judged. It's also what he meant when he told Peter, He who lives by the sword will die by the sword. That we get to choose our standard of justice. But what is the standard of justice that God is looking for? That should be the question we're asking right now. And we see that right away in our next passage. And I went right past it. Um, in Genesis 18, right where we're at the beginning, we see, For I have chosen him that he will command his children and his house after him to keep the way of the Lord by doing what is right and just. That this word righteousness is sometimes, that word is translated as righteousness and justice. Righteousness is a relational word that means to be in right standing with God and with men. So the justice of God is that justice when we do what is due in order to bring about right standing between man and God and between man and man to each other. And it's so, such an integral concept that it really became a concept of its own. And we see that these two words, righteousness and justice, all over the place together in the Bible. So much so that it's kind of like a, one term that you would use, righteousness and justice, or justice and righteousness. Sometimes it gets switched around. Uh, by Micah's time, a lot of the prophets were just shortening this to just justice. It's kind of like when we say, give me a Coke, not a Coca-Cola classic. Right? People know what we mean. And so the prophets during Micah's time, when they say justice, we see this. This idea of justice and righteousness is always paired with caring for the poor and the widow and the orphan and the alien or the immigrant. That we make things right by those who are powerless. That we use the power God gives us to make things right for the powerless. And like I said, by Micah's and Isaiah's time, this idea has just been shortened to the word justice. But a little bit later, then, they, we, the, these terms of righteousness and justice, or sometimes we say true justice, came back. And that's because as we get to the later prophets, these big empires are attacking Israel and taking it over. And those emperors of those big empires, every time they'd come into power, they'd declare themselves the bringer of justice and a whole lot of other things. And so the prophets have to start using these terms of righteousness and justice or true justice again so that there differentiates. No, no, we're not talking about the justice of the king of Babylon. We're talking about God's justice. This is true justice. So what's the nature of true justice? What kind of relationship are we trying to make right through justice? And Micah tells us in his next few words. And he, what does the Lord require of you but to do justice and to love mercy? Zechariah 9, 7.9 brings it out the same way. Administer true justice. Show mercy and compassion to one another. This word mercy is our word chesed that we talked about just a few minutes ago. That we love chesed. And like I was saying, chesed is an incredibly hard word to translate. Um, some people say it's untranslatable. And we see it show up in lots of different ways. And I know you can't see everything on there that it shows, but there's lots of different ways that chesed gets translated throughout scripture. And I thought we'd look at some examples real quick. 
The very first time we see Hesed, not surprisingly, is right after the very first time we see justice. In 1919, after Lot is taken out of Sodom and Gomorrah, he says this to the angels. He said, your servant has indeed found favor with you. You have shown me great Hesed by saving my life. And so the translators put that as, you have shown me great kindness by saving my life. So chesed, in addition to mercy, can also be kindness. Or how about this one in the next chapter? So, this is Abraham speaking. So when God had me wander from my father's house, I said to Sarah, show your chesed to me wherever we go and say about me, he is my brother. This is part of Abraham's deception of the king Abimelech. And so the translators on that one went with loyalty. Show me your loyalty. Very difficult to translate. It's kind of a strange word. In Exodus, just after the Israelites cross the Red Sea, they sing a song. And part of that song, they say, With your chesed, you will lead your people you have redeemed. You will guide them to your holy dwelling with your strength. What do you, any, any ideas what, what word went with here? What word would you put here? Through your glory. The translators here went with faithful love. Through your faithful love, you will lead the people. This is all the same concept in the Hebrew language, all the same word. Or in Psalm 136, we sing a song that's based off of it. Give thanks to the Lord, our God and King, his, yeah, his chesed endures forever. That's Psalm 36, where it just says your love will endure forever. Over and over, it's chesed, chesed, chesed. If you want to know what chesed is like, what chesed does for people, you can look at Psalm 136, because over and over they're saying, he's done this because his chesed endures forever. You got, you're kind of getting the idea? Yeah, yeah. Let's, let's do one more. Leviticus 20:17. If a man takes his sister, a daughter of his father or a daughter of his mother, and sees her nakedness, and she sees his nakedness, it is chesed, and they shall be cut off in the sight of their people. What? <laughs> I told you, this is a weird word, you know. Untranslatable. So yeah, the the uh, the translators here went with a disgrace. Yeah, it doesn't follow, does it? And I, I'll tell you, I spent literally months trying to track this down, figure out what's going on in here, and it took me down a lot of rabbit trails through Genesis, through some of the darkest spots of Second Samuel. And all I could come up with was something very similar. Do you guys remember when uh, Michael Hendricks was here and he was talking about attachment? And he said this biblical concept of chesed is very similar to that. I think, it's, I think he's right. <laughs> That's kind of what I came to as I was looking through that. That it's this very strong, inexpressible sense of attachment or connection with people or with God. That's almost inexpressible. And God tells us to love, to lean into that attachment, to allow ourselves to be attached to one another, to allow ourselves to be attached to him with this deep, overwhelming connection or attachment. This attachment has two main features that we want to talk about today. The first one is it's covenantal. It comes from a covenant, from an agreement. In Deuteronomy, as the Israelites are getting ready to go into the promised land, God says, For you are a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you out of all the peoples on the face of the earth to be his treasured possession. The Lord did not set his affection on you and choose you because you were more numerous than other peoples. 
For you are, in fact, the fewest of all peoples. But it was because the Lord loved you and kept the oath he swore to your ancestors that he brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the land of slavery, from the power of Pharaoh and the king of Egypt. Know, therefore, that the Lord your God is God. He is the faithful God, keeping his covenant of chesed to a thousand generations of those who love him and keep his commandments. God had sworn an oath to the ancestor to Israel's ancestors and to the previous generation of Israelites so what happened to them would now happen to him that he was not separate from the results of what happened to the Israelites and this connection had already cost him we know those of us who know Christ know that what what all it cost him but this connection even had already cost him beforehand 40 years earlier the Israelites were getting ready to go into the promised land. And they sent out spies, and the spies came back and said, nah, we can't do this. We're not going to do it. And God responds to Moses and said, that's it. I'm done. Forget it. I'm going to just wipe them all out. And Moses, we're going to start over with you because I, I can't handle this. I'm, not, I'm just done with it. And Moses responds to him and says, then the Egyptians will hear about it. By your power, you brought these people up from among them. And they will tell the inhabitants of this land about it. They have already heard that you, Lord, are with these people, right? You're with these people. You're connected. And that you, Lord, have been seen face to face, that your cloud stays over them and that you go before them in a pillar of cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night. If you put these people to death, leaving none alive, the nations who have heard this report about you will say, the Lord was not able to bring these people into the land he promised on them on oath. So he slaughtered them in the wilderness. Now, may the Lord's strength be displayed just as you have declared. The Lord is slow to anger, abounding in chesed, and forgiving sin and rebellion. Yet he does not leave the guilty unpunished. He punishes the children for the sins of their parents to the third and fourth generation. Oh no, we're in trouble. Check one. Okay. Man, I was on a roll. <laughs> in accordance with your great chesed, forgive these, the sin of these people. So Moses is telling him, hey, in accordance to your connection with these people, forgive them just as you have pardoned them before. Because of the covenant of chesed, God's strength is best displayed by making his relationship right, not by ending the relationship. So the covenant of chesed means that God would bear the indignity for the sake of this attachment not going into the land he desired, but staying with Israel until they were ready to go in. This doesn't deny the natural consequences of their sin, even with forgiveness, but it does walk through the indignity of those consequences with the sinner. This is what Hesed does. This is what God's strength does. And his strength, his strength was displayed by taking even these people into the promised land with him. That was God's strength. So it is first covenantal. Because of that covenant, they are connected. It is also familial or family-based. This word here in Zechariah 7, 9, administer true justice, show mercy and compassion to one another. Compassion. Compa this word compassion in the Hebrew language comes from the same root word as the word womb. 
Meaning that if you feel compassion for somebody, you feel as though the person was in your own womb. You have that level of care for that person, that level of desire for that person. Or that maybe you both came from the same womb, or that they came from you. The Bible and the Holy Spirit can give us sufficient understanding of compassion to do the will of God. But if we really want to understand compassion, God's compassion for us, if we really want to understand the roots of true justice, we might do well to listen to and be advised by people who actually have wombs. God goes even further with this by taking on Israel as his firstborn son. That's exactly what he tells Pharaoh in Exodus 4.22. This is what the Lord says. Israel is my firstborn son. This compassionate Hesed can even create families. And we see that in the book of Ruth, when Ruth's mother-in-law says, go, just go back home because I've got nothing to offer you. And Ruth says, no, don't argue me, don't urge me to leave you and to turn back from where, from you. Where you go, I will go. Where you stay, I will stay. Your people will be my people. And your God, my God. Through chesed, Ruth becomes part of the family of God in more ways than one. This is why marriage is such an important sign of God's love throughout the Bible. I mean, think about it. Marriage is this attachment between two people that is sealed with a covenant and creates a family. God is so interested in marriage because it is a sign of his love for those. It's also why the Old Testament is so full of genealogies. I know they're so exciting to read, right? And so-and-so begot so-and-so and so-and-so. What those genealogies are showing us is that we're all part of one family. We have a familial, a family bond already. And to love Hesed is to lean into that. So the biblical model of true justice is not a choice between justice and mercy. And it's not even like a balance of justice and mercy. It's a justice that comes from mercy, that is based upon mercy or Hesed, this idea of Hesed. Justice that acknowledges our attachment to our fellow images of God, and at an even deeper level, level, our brothers and sisters in Christ, that our names are attached to one another the way God's name was attached to Israel, because its roots are the compassion that we have for one another. We recognize that we are all one family, so there's no such thing as someone else's child. The fate of one of us, even one of us who has done something wrong or even heinous, affects us all as if that person were our own child. Doing justice like this is not possible without God's intervention. But it's essential for us to understand and strive for. A little over a year after Lisa and I moved to Florida, moved down to Florida, we moved down for a job that, for me that kind of evaporated, and I had just gotten started working full-time at a new job a little more than a year after we moved down there. And I walk out to the mailbox one day, and there's a jury summons. I'm like, oh, great. <laughs> I just started this full-time job, and now I tell my boss I'm going to be out for at least a day. Um, and I got talking to some people and said, oh, don't worry about it. Most people don't even get chosen for a jury. You'll be fine. It'll be one day, and well, that's not what happened. <laughs> um, ultimately, I was selected for a jury, and the 
the crime that the defendant was accused from of was murder in the first degree. And there was no getting out of it. <laughs> um, not only that, but eventually I was named foreman of the jury. I was maybe 26 at the time. And after going through a trial that included looking at terrible pictures of a crime scene and listening to a 911 call from the victim's families, we sat in a room and discussed and came to the conclusion that this man very much was guilty of murder in the first degree. We walked out and we read our verdict, and then the defense asked for the one thing the defense could do at that point, which was to have each person go down the line and say, yes, I agree with that verdict. And after that was done, the judge dismissed us, and we walked out to our cars. It was good because everybody else was waiting for the sentencing, but we were able to walk out to their cars and just silence at the weight of what had just happened. And one woman, it wasn't complete silence, one woman was just fighting back sobs the whole way out to her car. This was something terrible. And we wanted to just be done with it. We wanted to set it aside. I even met one of the jurors in a parking lot a few months later, and we just didn't have anything to talk about. I just wanted it to be done. And I've, when I got to work, I had a coworker who was very much into this trial thingy, and had looked it up and found out that he, the man had gotten the mandatory minimum sentence for murder in the first degree in the state of Florida at that time, which was life without the opportunity for parole. And then they also had some quotes from the family of the victim talking about how they were just so glad they had received closure on this matter. And really, that's what we were all looking for. This was a terrible thing. We wanted to move on and forget it. And I spent years of my life actively trying to forget about it. Because closure seeks the end of a bad situation, right? That I can put it aside, and that's what everyone in that courtroom was looking for, nearly everyone, to put this bad thing, this bad person behind us, close the door on that chapter, and move on. But when we are loving chesed, there is no one-sided closure. Because what happens to the other, even the other who has done something heinous and terrible, affects us we still have some connection to that person. But we just wanted to end that. In that courtroom, that man received the justice according to the state of Florida. But he did not receive in that courtroom true justice. Aside from my, as foreman, my signature being on the verdict, there was no connection, no acknowledgement. That, and the sentence from the state of Florida was to put this person away because, and never have them part of a society again. And that might be the best thing, but there's no opportunity to find out. There's no way. It's not a Hesed-based justice because there was no connection, no way to remake that connection. We did a justice, but we did not love Hesed, which leads to true justice. And I'm going to be honest with you, as I've looked at this material and meditated on this material for, for several months now, I still don't have a good answer for what I have the power to do to do true justice now raising a family in Indiana when he's in Florida, incarcerated. I don't know. And this, is, this concept is relatively simple, but the application of it is often messy, and the application of it often leads us with more questions than answers, and this is why we need God's help. True justice requires us to suffer in sharing the indignity of the sinner. 
The prophet Hosea was commanded by God to marry a prostitute as an example of what God, how God has hesed for us, as God has hesed for Israel and God has hesed for us. And he described his relationship this way. Notice the presence of all the words. I will betroth you to me forever. I will betroth you in righteousness and justice, in love and compassion. That word love is our word chesed again. All four of those words. What does it look like when you betroth somebody, when you connect with somebody in justice, righteousness and justice, and love and compassion? So the story goes on that Hosea's wife is a prostitute, and she goes and does her profession, and eventually winds up in, in slavery for it. And what does it look like for Hosea to love, him, to, be, to be connected with her in righteousness and justice and chesed and compassion? In the very next chapter, it starts by telling us, so I went and I paid 15 shekels for her. He went and paid 15 shekels for her. He took that indignity. He took that suffering and paid for it. And this is what God does. The goal here is not closure because closure doesn't work. True justice costs the bringer of justice something because the goal is not moving on. It's shalom. I got one. That's my I promise. That's my last Hebrew word. <laughs> it's shalom. Um, shalom, we often translate it as peace, but it's not just peace. It's actively working for one another's good, not just hostilities. It also refers to this idea of being complete or full. If a wall has a hole in it and you fill the wall, the hole in the wall, we say that the wall is now shalom, that it's completeness. If we really want to understand shalom, we can look at how the Bible describes Solomon's kingdom. When Solomon reigns, Solomon's name literally means shalom man. <laughs> It, it, we pronounce it Solomon, but it's Shalomon. Shalom. And what the Bible says when Shalom is ruling, when Solomon is ruling, it says Solomon had peace on all sides. During Solomon's lifetime, Judah and Israel, from Dan to Beersheba, that's all of Judah and Israel, lived in safety, each man under his own vine and fig tree. The district officers each month, each in his month, supplied provisions for the King Solomon and all who came to the king's table. They saw to it that nothing was lacking. Seeking shalom is necessary because of our love of Hesed. If we are truly attached, then we cannot have closure without shalom. Because what has happened to the other person affects us. Shalom is the fruit of doing true justice, of doing justice from the love of Hesed. And as proof for that, Micah shows us, after he tells us to do these things, he talks about how Israel's leaders haven't been doing this. And what's the result of that? If you read the end of Micah chapter 6 again, you'll see it's the opposite of shalom. Because they aren't doing this, that's the opposite of shalom. You will eat, but not be satisfied. Your stomach will still be empty. You will store up, but save nothing. Because what you have saved, I will give to the sword. You will plant, but not harvest. You will press olives, but not use the oil. You will crush grapes and not drink the wine. When we don't do this, we don't see the fruit of doing true justice from a love of hesed. What we see is the opposite of shalom emptiness, incompleteness, the sword, 
Micah's telling you, we do these things so we don't get that. So, how many are wondering what happened to Nick and Cindy? We started there. Cindy ultimately made a plea deal, and it involved some time of incarceration, some time of community control. She had to go on on the sex offender list, and she had other accountability measures as well. But that meant there were consequences for Nick, too. Because she was on that list, their house that they had been working on was too close to a nearby park. So they had to sell it at a time when things were depressed. He also had to deal with a lot of the abuse from the public online. But he continued to his love of Hesed for Cindy. It went radical changes in their life. They moved out to a, for a while to a house that was not much more than a shack out in the countryside. Um, they both got involved with Celebrate Recovery, which is a ministry we've had here for in the past, and uh, ultimately were helping run that. And they also received radical hesed from the church. The church didn't abandon either of them in that time, and they didn't. They helped with that. Helped Nick find out what he needed to do. They visited Cindy often. We threw a party when her when her community control came to an end, and through all that. They were able to, and we helped, we, we helped shuttle their daughter around and protect her from those things that were happening around her. And through all that, they were able to raise their daughter together. And she's now going to a, a great college. And after many years of financial struggle together, they bought some land and began to work it. And they continued living together with that, being able to be together raising their daughter. They are literally living underneath their own trees out in the countryside and tending their own vines. When Nick chose his chesed for his wife, Cindy, the fruit of that was shalom, this complete life together. And at one point I was talking with Nick about that and I asked him, well, how did you do that? Like, how did you know? What gave you the ability in that moment And Nick said a lot of things about just recognizing how his own relationship with God had not always been true, how his own relationship didn't always live out the way that the Bible told him to. And basically, in a lot of words, Nick said the next thing that Micah tells us to do. He chose to walk humbly. Eldon talked about this a few weeks ago when he was preaching, that walking humbly means that we do what is required. But even more than that, we can do this because we really recognize that God had hesed for us first. That God honored his connection with us as his creation first. Sometimes this is hard to see. We, see, we have this talk of justice and mercy and we wonder, is this part of God's plan of salvation or is it just something we do because of God's salvation? And it's hard to see because most of us learned about God's salvation from Paul. And Paul wrote in Greek. And Hesed doesn't translate into Greek any better than it translates into English. <laughs> so, so sometimes it's hard to see. But, and we're used to Paul because Paul is nice and concise by comparison and, and explaining things. He has the advantage of he's writing about these things several decades after it happened or, and not several hundred years before it happened. But we also see a plan of salvation in Isaiah. And we don't have time to go through all of these. We're not going to. <laughs> but I hope you'll take some time 
and look at God's plan of salvation as Isaiah talks about it, specifically in Isaiah 49 to 54. And those same verses are in your bulletin. So I hope you'll look there. You'll find all the words we've been talking about are just concentrated into that area. God's plan of salvation was to do true justice for us. And when we walk humbly in that, what other choice do we have? And it makes you wonder about this word require. What does the Lord require? It's interesting. I looked this up too. Most of the time, this word that here in Micah is translated require, it's usually translated to seek or care, not require. So we're not talking about something that God requires from us. It's something that God requires for us. God wants us to have. He requires it like we require our children to do schoolwork because we know we want them to open their lives to the fullness, the shalom, the education will provide. And though these things are difficult for us in our childlike state, God knows that these acts of true justice are the building blocks of the house of shalom he is building for all creation. His requirement that we suffer sharing the indignity of one another is actually an invitation to share in the dignity of building that house with him. And in his hesed for us, he has suffered clearing the land of our sin and laying a foundation for us that we could never lay for ourselves. And in his compassion, he cares for us like a woman cares for the child in her womb and longs for us to join him like she longs to meet that child face to face. This is exactly what Jesus meant when he told us to leave our sacrifices and be reconciled. And this is exactly what Paul meant when he talked in sharing Christ's sufferings that we might share in his glory. Why would we ever think he actually wanted a thousand rams? He wants you to live in a house of shalom with him. And when that house of shalom is completed, when it is shalom, we will live forever with him in shalom, shalom. Perfect peace. So the question for us today is, where in our lives have we sought closure instead of shalom? Maybe you're thinking of somebody that has done something very wrong in your life. Maybe somebody that's done something very wrong in your life, somebody that maybe has even betrayed you. Maybe somebody that came to mind when we were talking about Nick and Cindy's story at the beginning. Where and how has God empowered you to share in dignity and the share in the indignity in the pursuit of that shalom? I want to make one thing very clear here. The difference between suffering and being unsafe. To recognize where we have power. Jesus suffered on the cross because he had power over death and was never really unsafe. He gave his life freely, he said. No one took it from him. Justice is the providence of the powerful, and Jesus could do true justice because he had all the power, even over death. That doesn't mean it wasn't suffering. He still suffered on the cross, but he was not unsafe, and he was not abused. That was his choice to be there. And I want to say to you that if you're experiencing abuse, if you are being abused, you by definition do not have power in that situation to maintain your safety. So you certainly do not have power to do justice. Justice is the providence of the powerful. One definition of an abuser might be someone with power using it for injustice. 
And if any Christian leader has ever told you or implied to you that for righteousness sake, you need to stay in an abusive relationship, I am so sorry. And they were so wrong. Lot in Genesis had chesed for the abusers in Sodom. Do you notice that? He cared about them. He used the familial term brothers when addressing them. He really cared about them. And what, but when he tried to do justice from his powerless position, he offered something absolutely disgraceful. When God came to help him, it was to tell him and to help him get out and separate from the abusers. The only godly response to abuse is that which tells and helps the abused to get out. If you want to do true justice in that situation, you must first get out. Trying to do justice from a position without power will turn your chesed for that person into a disgrace. That's what happened to Lot. If you want to do true justice in that, it means first sharing in the indignity of separation. Doesn't mean you have to deny the attachment, the chesed attachment. You can still pray for them that they don't meet the same end as Sodom and Gomorrah. Part of walking humbly with God is recognizing when you don't have the power and trusting God to use his. It might be sharing the indignity of a chaperone meeting until you both get the counseling you need. If the person isn't willing to live with you in this way, it might even be such a circumstance like Paul describes in 1 Corinthians. This side of new creation, doing true justice, will often look like suffering all kinds of indignity. It might even look like a cross. It might even mean denying even the cross we think we are ready for, for one that we want even less. But when we consider God's mercy, that is his hesed for us, can we do anything other than pick up that cross he tells us to and get to work with him on his house of shalom? Is there anything more worth doing? And what does the Lord require of you? But to do justice, love mercy, and walk humbly with your God. Amen.